How can this woman be an unclean, defiled person when she understands my master and she has faith in my master that's even stronger than mine? I must rethink how I see people. I must rethink how I think of other people. And Jesus understands that must happen for the foundation of his church. So what are we left with? Why does Jesus treat her in this way? So much ink has been spilled, page after page. If you read the commentators about this, page after page is written in attempts to explain this, that all follow basically the same, well, I shouldn't say the same, one of two or three lines of thought. All of them attempting what I would see as the same goal. And here's that goal. It's the goal of alleviating Jesus of the awkwardness of not responding to this woman as we would expect him. Page after page. And here are the main ways that that's gone about. Number one, oftentimes commentators will seize upon the fact that Jesus uses the diminutive form, this little dog. And they'll say, well, Jesus didn't really call her a dog. He called her a little dog. And that's really the key to understanding what Jesus is doing here. He didn't didn't insult her with this form of dog, just call her this dog, which is how Jews refer to Gentiles. Every Jew referred to every Gentile as a dog. And Jesus really isn't using that same word. And there's some truth that Jesus didn't use the same word. But I don't know. Is that satisfying to you? That he called her a little dog instead of a dog? He called her a house pet instead of a scavenger dog? That's not really... That's not really relieving Jesus of any of the awkwardness of how he treated her, is it? If you are attempting to relieve Jesus of the responsibility of not treating this woman in a loving manner, you didn't really get there when you center on the fact that he'd called her a house pet dog instead of a wild dog. Others will say, well, really the answer here is the fact that we don't know Jesus' tone of voice. We didn't see his facial expressions. We didn't see his body language. And so apparently there was something about his tone of voice. Maybe he said this with a smile, with such a winsome look on his face and with body language that let the, let the lady know that I don't really think you're a dog, but let me just sort of have this little banter, this exchange between us two. And it's quite surprising how many, how many responsible Bible expositors will take that explanation. Uh, those who's, who, uh, whose treatment of the Scriptures is reliable will oftentimes take the explanation to say, well, we didn't hear his tone of voice and there had to be something in his tone of voice that explained all this. Charles Barkley, for one, not the basketball player, but the other Charles Barkley, will, will say that for certain we know that there was a twinkle in Jesus' eye that told this woman that he really did love her. To which I would say, really? We know that for certain? And how do we know that for certain? Because it's not in the text. Neither is his tone of voice in the text. Neither is his body language in the text. Alistair Begg, to whom I listen to regularly and I respect a great deal, will say the same thing. The answer is in how Jesus said it. Really? I don't think so, Dr. Begg. 
Because here is a fact of biblical interpretation. Nothing in Scripture, nothing in Scripture requires for you to know the tone of voice it was spoken in in order for you to know the meaning. How do we know that? Because the Scriptures don't give us the tone of voice. And God will not give us the Scriptures that require something to understand them that were not given. The Scriptures are perfect in every way. They give us everything that we need for godliness. And if we needed to know Jesus' facial expressions, we would have been told them. So the meaning of what Jesus says is not wrapped up in how He said it. There is something about the words He used that tells us the meaning. The third, I guess the third tactic to try to relieve Jesus of this tension is to say that what Jesus was really doing was He was really drawing her faith out from her. Jesus saw that she had faith and she knew she had faith, but Jesus wanted her to step out on that faith. He wanted her to act on that faith and He draws that out of her with this little banter back and forth. And He knows that her faith will respond to that banter positively and respond by saying, yes, I will cling to this hope that you will do this and that you're willing. And so some will use that explanation to try to alleviate Jesus of this responsibility. The problem is, if that's what Jesus was doing, this is the only time he does that. There is no other instance in which Jesus is encountering a person with small faith or weak faith, and his tactic is that. In fact, his tactic is the opposite. Think of Jairus, who came to Jesus in a very similar situation with weak faith. What does Jesus say to Jairus? Believe. Believe. Or think of the the father who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Or think of the disciples in the boat. As they say to Jesus, Jesus, do you not care? We're about to die. And Jesus says, what happened to your faith? Nowhere else is Jesus' tactic to say, let me pretend that I'm not going to answer your request in order to draw your faith out of you. So I find that unsatisfying too. In fact, I find it quite remarkable that the answer is so easy to see and so few see it. Because we can see exactly why Jesus goes here and exactly why He has the interchange with this woman in the way that He does simply by following the first rule of biblical interpretation. And what's the first rule of biblical interpretation? Besides, of course, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the first rule of biblical interpretation is context, context, context. Always follow the context. If you don't follow the context, you will always risk distorting the Scriptures. Context is always important. So if we let the context inform us, we will be led down the right path. Now our Bibles, we are blessed with Bibles that our editors, our Bible editors have have served us by giving us lots of subheadings. And I'm thankful for the subheadings in my Bible. Because the subheadings in my Bible let me easily find passages that I don't always know exactly where they are. I can know within two or three chapters maybe, and I can turn to those two or three chapters, and the subheadings will, will draw me in. They'll suck me in. And I'm so, I'm, so I'm thankful for that. 
But those subheadings are also a stumbling block. Because what the subheadings can do, and you don't even realize they do this, the subheadings lead you into thinking of the Scriptures as independent little separate sections of Scripture that stand independently. And when you want to turn to the Scriptures, you can just turn to a subheading and just jump right in because they're all freestanding independent passages, and they're not. And the subheadings will fool you into thinking of the Scriptures like little independent chunks. So we must always remind ourselves the subheadings were not written by Mark. So if we take those subheadings out and we remind ourselves of the context, in fact, let's go back in the context. Let's go back about five or six episodes. If we go back about five or six episodes and we start reminding ourselves of what Mark has been showing us, the answer will be very forthcoming. So five or six episodes ago, Jesus sent out the disciples for the first time, two by two. And as he sent them out, what did they encounter? They encountered choices. They encountered decisions. Because as they went out with this gospel message for the first time, they are the ones delivering this message without Jesus there with them. For the first time, they're not standing on the sidelines listening to Jesus, watching Jesus heal people, listening to Him teach people. For the first time, they are the ones doing the speaking. And as they're doing the speaking, they're encountering people that are listening and people that aren't listening. Furthermore, they are doing this in the same region, the region of Galilee, which is a region that's inhabited by only not only Jews, but also Gentiles. And so they are faced for the first time with this question. As they are there on the street corner in the city gates and they're telling about this man, Jesus, who's two villages over, they themselves are faced with the question as they're talking and there's Jews gathered around them, but then over there behind there's a couple of Gentiles listening. What should I do? Should I speak to them? Should I address them? Or are they not to hear this at all? What about those who seem disinterested? How do I navigate that? How do I address the Gentile who has questions about Jesus? So they're faced with that for the first time. Then comes the episode of the beheading of John the baptizer. But then after that, Jesus says to them, let's go away. Let's go and rest. We need some time away. They cross the Sea of Galilee, find no rest, But instead, what do they find? They find a situation that they utterly and completely misunderstand. We know that because that was the impetus for the storm that night. The storm that night was for the purpose of their misunderstanding because Mark specifically says to us, This is happening. They were terrified because they didn't understand the loaves. So right after being sent out, they then try to go away and get some rest. They don't get any rest. But then they're faced with this situation in which they just don't comprehend the message and the ministry and the person of Christ. And their failure to comprehend put them in that situation in which Jesus revealed Himself to them. Okay? Then they come ashore to Gennesaret. They get out of the boat. 
to the crowds and the people and they're flocked and mobbed by people. And then comes the controversy of the Pharisees, which isn't new, but it's now revived as the Pharisees come up once again from Jerusalem to say, why are your disciples not following the ritual laws? Why are your, or not the laws, the traditions. Why are your disciples not following the ritual traditions? And that whole controversy, remember it was a big deal. The big deal in that passage was, these people are defiled. These things are defiled. These foods are defiled. And the whole, the whole point was, Jesus was to say, that's not defilement. Defilement doesn't go in you. Defilement comes out of you. And remember, all of that was preparing us, of course, because Mark, Mark tells us, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. All of that was about this deep-seated way of viewing people, particularly the Gentiles who were a defiled people. Remember all that? Now, with the subheadings gone, immediately on the heels of that, Jesus says, let's go to Tyre. Immediately on the heels of that, Jesus takes them 35 miles into the heart of defiled country. Into a land that in a real sense was more defiled even than the Decapolis with the herds of pigs and the the tombs and the unclean man. He takes them into the core of Baal country. What did they find in the core of Baal country? A woman who understands his parables. You get it? Do you know who is the first person in Mark's gospel to understand his parables outside of his explanation? This woman. No one else in Mark's gospel has understood his parables without his explanations until her. And these disciples who couldn't understand. Remember, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, yet they still needed Jesus to explain everything to them. And the whole fact that the storm really was the result of their failing to understand who Jesus is and what His mission is. Now Jesus says, let's go to Tyre. They get to Tyre and what do they find in Tyre is the only person in Mark's gospel who does understand. And furthermore, she is a Gentile and she is a woman. The Pharisees would not allow a woman to sit at a rabbi's feet. Which, by the way, sheds a new light on the whole story of Mary and Martha and how Mary sits at Jesus' feet, right? Because the Pharisees would not allow a woman to sit at a rabbi's feet. And that was a Jewish woman. This is a Gentile woman. And yet the Gentile woman comprehends what they haven't. Not only does she understand it, Jesus tells this parable about her. That's The parable is about her. Because Jesus uses these common terms. The Israelites commonly thought of themselves as the children of God and they commonly thought of Gentiles as dogs. 
And so Jesus is telling the parable about her. She understands it and then enters into the parable to answer Jesus with his own parable. Do you see how she gets it? Yes, Lord. But even the little dogs can eat of the crumbs that are the children's crumbs. Jesus travels to this Gentile land to encounter a woman who understands what they haven't understood and has faith that they don't have. Do you remember? Jesus, don't you care? We're about to drown. What happened to your faith? Oh, you of little faith. Do you really think that you were going to drown with me in the boat? Now they encounter a woman who believes and she believes the three core things that we've talked about all along. All of those who come to Jesus believe these, three, these same three things. He is able to help me. He is willing to help me. And He will make Himself accessible to help me. All those who have come to Jesus believe those three things. He is able, He is willing, and He will make Himself accessible. She believes those things so resolutely that she cannot be rebuffed by Jesus' harsh answers. So who is Jesus doing this for? There may be some truth to the fact that Jesus is giving her opportunity to show her faith and to strengthen her faith by answering Him in this way. There may be some truth to that. But this little exchange between Jesus and this woman is not for the woman's benefit. You know whose benefit this is for? This is for the disciples' benefit. Could it be that these disciples still had a corner of their heart, a part of their heart, that as these Pharisees came up and they said, Jesus, why aren't you following the traditions? Could it be that part of their heart said, yeah, why don't we? Could it be that part of their heart still said, yeah, these, these Gentiles do sort of give me the creeps. I, I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with what we're doing with all these Gentile people and how, how we're going about all this. Could it be that Jesus took the disciples here in order for them to witness an exchange in which Jesus will use words that they have heard their whole life and phrases that they've heard their whole life and Jesus will use those words and phrases so that those words coming out of His mouth to them will sound like they absolutely don't fit. You ever had that happen? Some sin that you have in your heart or some way of thinking that you have in your heart? And then someone else who's not a slave to that same sin will verbalize that and coming out of their mouth it just doesn't sound right? You ever had that happen to you? Could it be that that's what Jesus is doing? Could it be that Jesus' words and Jesus' silence to the woman is really for the disciples to see that and to see what hypocrites we have been and how we need to think of this woman differently? I think so. One of the reasons I think so is because... Let's look to Matthew's text now. You'll have to turn back to the front of your notes. Back from Matthew chapter 20... I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 23. But He did not answer her a word. And His disciples came and begged Him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. You know what I hear there? I hear zero sympathy for the woman. Jesus is taking the stance 
so to speak, of having no sympathy. But out of the mouth of the disciples, they have no empathy for her. They are tired of her. They are sick of her. She is like the demon-possessed woman that followed Paul around Philippi. They're like that. They're saying, Jesus, she is a nuisance. Will you make her go away? But then notice the next verse. Verse 24, He answered. Here's the question. Who did Jesus answer? Who does Jesus speak the following words to? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Who was Jesus speaking to? The last person to speak to Jesus in the story was the disciples, not the woman. And Matthew doesn't say, turning to the woman, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus says those words to the disciples. Lord, send her away. She's such a nuisance. Make her stop. Make her go away. And I think Jesus turns to the disciples and says, all right, fellas, what would you have me do? What do you want me to do, fellas? I was sent only to the lost house, lost sheep of the house of Israel. What should I do? As though to put it back upon them. As though to say to them, First of all, to show them he, he doesn't answer her. She pleads. He doesn't answer her. He then says to them as she's going on, please help me, Lord. Please help me. My daughter, she's possessed of a demon. Please help me. And the disciples say, Jesus, make her go away. Jesus turns to them and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You want me to rebuke her, guys? You want me to make her leave us alone? What do you think I should do right here? So here's the question. Was Jesus sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? What do you think? Yes or no? He said it. That's what he said. Was he lying? Was he being deceptive? Was Jesus sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? It depends. You say, what a cop-out answer. No, it depends on what you mean by Israel. If what you mean by Israel is that political nation whose capital was Jerusalem, who was ruled by the Roman Empire, who had borders and laws and taxes. If that's what you mean by Israel, no, Jesus was not sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Even the Old Testament could not be more plain and more clear than that. Genesis 12 and verse 6, in which God says, I will bless all people through you. All nations will be blessed through you. Isaiah 42, where God says to His Son, it's too small of a thing for you to be a light only to the house of Jacob. I will make you a light to all the nations and dozens of other places. If you mean Israel, if by Israel you mean political Israel or those who ethnically identified as Jews, 
those who follow the circumcision laws, the dietary laws, the sacrificial laws, if that's what you mean by Israel, then no, Jesus was not sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But if by Israel you mean what the New Testament means by Israel, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, when he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, meaning ethnic Jews, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So if by Israel you mean the people of God, if you mean the called people of God, then yes, Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was not sent to any but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those are not my words. Those are His. And so the question to the disciples really is this. Is this woman an Israelite? That's what he's asking. Is this woman an Israelite? Here is a woman who comprehends what I say. Remember the parable of the soils? How does she comprehend what Jesus says? By the work of the Spirit. She comprehends what he says and she has faith. And Jesus asked them, is she an Israelite or not? Have we come all this way to rescue one of my sheep or not? Is this what Jesus meant in John 10 and verse 16? And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. You see, Jesus makes this journey into Tyre and Sidon for the same reason that Elijah made his journey into Zarephath to rescue one of God's sheep. But in the rescue of that one sheep, Jesus brings the disciples along with Him so that they may see that the hypocrisy and the hatred in the heart of the Pharisees that has to some degree infected the disciples, they must expunge that. They are to be the foundation of the church. And for them to be the foundation of the church, they must know what true Israel looks like. They must lose all the vestiges of thinking of certain groups of people as unclean and defiled and off limits. They must lose all of that way of thinking and to show them this, Jesus takes them to Tyre and a true Israelite comes before him. And instead of granting her request right away, he has this interchange in order for the disciples to be led into understanding, wait a minute, how can this woman be defiled? How can this woman be an unclean, defiled person when she understands my master and she has faith in my master that's even stronger than mine, I must rethink how I see people. I must rethink how I think of other people. And Jesus understands that must happen for the foundation of his church. 